0: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. I'm delighted to welcome back my good friend Jojo Moyes. As I'm pretty sure you already know, Jojo is the global best-selling author of Me Before You and 16 other novels. She's sold 51 million copies globally, and several of her books have been turned into hit movies, including Me Before You, for which she wrote the screenplay. Her latest, Someone Else's Shoes, will definitely be joining them. It's an action-packed, emotionally astute, laugh-out-loud look at what happens when two very different women accidentally pick up each other's gym bags. It tells the good, the bad and the ugly about middle age. It's a love letter to female friendship and an ode to the totemic power of shoes. Sometimes
2: I feel very strong and think I genuinely don't care what anybody thinks of me. And that does come with age. That's definitely become more pronounced as I've gone into my 50s. But there is always going to be a bit of me that feels anxious and wants, you know, wants people to like me or thinks that I look nice. And I think, you know, that's probably the standard female experience.
1: I met with Jojo for a very long overdue catch up. We talked the liberation of being in our 50s, growing into your looks in middle age and surviving the midlife maelstrom of divorce, kids leaving home, perimenopause and workaholism. Oh, and guess what? She's a secret petrol head. Who knew? Because we haven't seen each other for so long. I want to say thank you so, so much for being like for massively taking a punt on the shift before it even existed oh my god don't be
2: ridiculous no I mean I I think you've helped open up the whole conversation about women of a certain age and that's got to be a healthy thing so yeah well done you oh
1: when I was reading it I was thinking I cannot imagine this book having been written not because of the shift but even like certainly 10 years ago oh my god how long ago 10 years ago when I started to go through the menopause but didn't know that was what was happening But even five, really, because when we were trying to sell the shift to publishers, when was that, 2019? They were all a bit like, nah, no one's interested. There were, you know, very few books with lead female characters and you've basically written an amazing ensemble movie for loads of female actresses over 40.
2: Yeah, yeah, because actually I think there's a, a definite recognition creeping in now that women of a certain age still have some value. We have things to say. We have experiences. We can be funny. We can be active. We can be sexual. We can be all those things. And I don't know, I find... There is something so liberating about this age that I, I wanted to kind of get out onto a page.
1: Has that changed since we last spoke? Because when, when did we, I can't remember when we did the interview for the last one. It was pre-pandemic. Um, yes. And I remember you know, I was working outside your flat and you turned up at your flat mm-hmm. carrying this enormous like hundred tog duvet. And I was like, oh, <laughs> she's not perimenopausal. <laughs> because there's no way that a duvet would get through the front door if she was having night sweats.
2: No, maybe I was and didn't know it because what I didn't feel ready to talk about in that podcast was my own struggles. Uh, and I've thought about that a lot since because I think psychologically I have emerged in a very different place to when I last saw you. Like many people, I had a a very tough few years Not just in terms of the pandemic, although that was, you know, harrowing for everybody in their own way. Everybody went through something. But I also ended my marriage of 22 years. Uh, My mother died after a long battle with cancer. I won't say I completely fell apart, but I certainly became very frayed at the edges due to my own workaholism. I think. Mm. And I've had to do the work to understand what happened and how not to let that happen to me again. So I I went on antidepressants for a couple of years, which were an amazing help, and I'm still in therapy. Um, but there was a lot to deal with, which completely shifted my Whole life and the way I look at the world. So yeah, I feel like I'm probably quite a different person from the person who did that last podcast with you. Although
1: I still do like
2: a really warm duvet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's so interesting because a lot of those things often happen at the same time, and it's partly. You know, we're at an age where things start to happen to our parents, of course. Yeah. But depending on how old your parents were when they had you and all of that. But also, I think that list of stuff that you just reeled off you know, like losing a parent, divorce or separation, therapy. like leaving home. Kids leaving re- home. home yeah. Re-evaluation of the way you've been like living your life and structuring your life, whether mm-hmm. it's like a, whether it's a relationship or, or work. The number of people I speak to who make really big changes to that around 50. And quite mm-hmm. often, like you did not Mention menopause, and I don't really like the kind of "oh, menopause is to blame for everything," but I do think that somewhere in there is that menopause is a factor and is part of the puzzle that makes all those things happen.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely—I haven't been through it yet. I wish I bloody had been because I'm still so have periods. periods. Yeah. Oh my uh, god, nightmare. Yeah, I'm fifty-three. Fifty-three. Oh Jesus, um, I haven't had a period I, since I'm forty-seven. Oh my god, the joy. Uh, but I'm that. definitely perimenopausal and I'm on HRT and I'm a massive massive believer in it. I went on it because I did that thing of going into a supermarket and having no idea why I'd come in there or what I was doing yeah. and it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying because the one thing I've held on to my whole life is is a real clarity of thought. I'm a very sharp and rapid thinker. And suddenly that was ebbing away. It's your
1: job, apart from anything else. Yeah,
2: it's my job. Mm. And, And my moods were fluctuating in a way that I couldn't understand because they didn't seem to relate to what was going on in my life. And... Yeah, I had night sweats. That was pretty unpleasant. I think until you have one, nobody can prepare you for actually waking up soaked, like Mm, soaked, like you have to change all your bedding. So I was probably quite an early adopter of HRT, uh, bioidentical hormones, you know, the safest kind. And all those things stopped almost immediately. So I figure that all the other stuff to do with periods, I can live with that as long as I have a fairly level mood and my thoughts are clear and I feel reasonably cheerful. And also I had a bone density scan done six months ago. And thank you weight training for the past 10-15 years because apparently I have the bone density of a 30 year old which was about the only nice news I've ever had about my health but yeah so women do some weights because it really does make a difference.
1: Weights are so important aren't they and I think it's just a thing Mm. well like boxing which I want to ask you about they're just things that um Women, I don't want to say women are not encouraged to do because I do think that's changing, but there is a kind of a macho culture around it. And also the kind of, you know, I mean, hands up, quite often when I have done exercise, it's because I want to be thin. It's only in the last kind of five, six, seven years that exercise has become for me about being strong and flexible. So I think that. Because there's this myth that weights bulk you up, that women shy away from it. Do you know,
2: I've always been the opposite. I grew up in a very male environment. My dad ran a transport company. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just looking at your cat in a bookshelf. Um, Yeah, my dad ran a transport company and one of my earliest jobs was cleaning there. So I kind of grew up around lorry drivers and people involved in transport logistics. I then went into journalism, which was a very male environment. Mm. And I was a tiny, weedy kid. So for me, my focus has always been on strength and trying to be as strong as other people, mm. or at least convey the impression of strength because I was so tiny. And so I perhaps less than other women, I think I've, I've focused less on weight than how I feel. And I didn't realize how useful that was in terms of how I viewed myself until much later in life. And when I had my own daughter, once she hit about 12, I removed all magazines that made women self-examine their appearance from my house because I wanted her gaze to be outwards and I wanted it to be about strength and not how she felt about everybody else's gaze upon her. And I think in some ways that would be a losing battle now because of social media and the way girls especially are encouraged to put themselves out there to be judged if you like, by other people. You know, do yeah. I get likes in this swimsuit? Do I get likes for how I look? I think it's so regressive in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, we, we all fall prey to it to some extent, but I really feel strength and looking outwards is so much more important. And I try to convey that in my fiction as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that 12 wasn't too late because, you know, I kind of watched my, I'm going to say it out loud, granddaughter. Mm. Um, <laughs> Granddaughter um, Get much more conscious about that The minute she starts school Mm. The kind of fat thing Which she absolutely isn't Started the minute seven, six Wow Well my daughter
2: went to a state school In her formative years And interestingly, she went to a private sixth form college and I don't want to kind of say anything that's going to get me in trouble, but there was a much, much higher proportion of eating disorders in the private girls only school Mm. than there was in her mixed state school, which I found really interesting. The girls at her state school were much more focused on kind of strength. It was really interesting. And I don't know whether it's a girl-only environment that helps foster that. I I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's kind of horrifying. I think, I mean, it's one of the things, I think we talked about it before, and it really, it feels really evident in someone else's shoes, that kind of, what you just touched on then, that objectification, if you like, the being the object of other people's gaze rather than the subject Mm. of your own life. And I think that one of the things about being this age that I really like is that not that I ever was a person who got you know who got a lot of male attention anyway but I think that I love that I love the absence mm. of that and I'm doing this thing that I do every time where I've written things down that you wrote that I absolutely loved and then I can never bloody find them oh yeah the brilliant the, when sam and that's the other thing it's like calling that character sam it was so weird for me it's like oh my god i didn't think of that <laughs> sorry yeah that the dismissive look of a man who thinks she's somewhere she doesn't really belong and the blank stare that disregards a woman no longer considered sexually desirable i just thought oh my well, god you know, yeah it's a
2: shock when that first happens to you you know i remember it very clearly i remember going to a friend's dinner in a a restaurant full of kind of young, handsome Italian waiters. And I remember joking with one of them and having the sudden realisation that this guy wasn't flirting with me. He was being kind to me in the way that you might your mum. Yes. And and that was about 10 years ago. And it was so interesting because until then, I, I think I hadn't felt that. And then that was the first time I felt it. And, you know, if you've been raised in a society that teaches you to value yourself through somebody else's gaze it is quite sobering because you have to say, okay, who am I if I'm now invisible to a good proportion of the population? And for me, I think that has been alleviated to a huge degree by the fact that it coincided with my first proper career success. So Mm. I have had my sense of self validated by what I do rather than the loss of how I might have looked, if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, totally. I um, interviewed Dani Shapiro. We were talking about that because she's, you know, a tall leggy stunner effectively but she was talking about being brought up being told that's your currency your looks are your currency and then the moving into the you know good for your age bracket which you know <laughs> which is so, see, I so weird isn't like it?
2: that i yeah i think because i was not a spectacularly attractive teenager um Same, and yeah. i think i probably didn't look how i would have liked to look until I was in my late forties. Yeah. I mean I I literally I was too busy and also in the early 90s, we weren't kind of encouraged to think about appearance in the same way. I think there was a lot of Ladette culture, and I was very much a jeans, boots, scrape your hair back, little bit of mascara type person. And I remember being kind of so astonished when nail bars started springing up around London, because I think I can count the number of manicures I've had in my entire life on two hands. I'm just not a high maintenance person. And there was suddenly all these women putting hours into their appearance, like actual hours. and So, yeah, I think I kind of bypassed that. And it was only really when I understood when I got older that the cut of your clothes or a good haircut could actually make the difference to how you felt in a fairly significant way. I don't think I felt the loss of my looks in the same way that somebody who was always encouraged to believe that they were beautiful and that that, that was their currency. Also, my mum was someone who was incredibly low maintenance. She was, you know, I think till mm-hmm. the day she died, it was a kind of lick of Nivea and, you know, a tiny bit of foundation for special occasions. Uh, and I'm sure you're affected by what you see your mother doing yeah. in terms of how much they look after themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, not like massive groomers and... No, no. And all of that. I mean, the quote that the publishers pulled out on the cover of someone else's shoes, I don't know if I've even said the title, so, but make sure I say the title. Just really, really struck a chord is that people decide what they think you're capable of based on how you look doubly so if you're a woman if you're a woman of a certain age that boils down to pretty much nothing Um, and I think that will resonate with so many readers but it is kind of the opposite of your experience isn't it
2: yeah I mean I think the fun that I had in this book was taking two women in their late middle years you know their late 40s and making them polar opposites Sam internalizes everything that happens to her and thinks that in some way she is lacking, in some way she's not working hard enough or trying hard enough or looking good enough. Anisha, who has spent her whole life cultivating her appearance to gain power, suddenly has all that swept away from her, but she turns it outwards. She's angry at the world. She doesn't care what people think of her. She just cares about what she wants and how she gets it. And that was a really fun character to write because I think that the two of them were extremes of how I view the world. You know, sometimes I feel very strong and think I genuinely don't care what anybody thinks of me. And that does come with age. That's definitely become more pronounced as I've gone into my 50s. But there is always going to be a bit of me that feels anxious and wants, you know, wants people to like me or thinks that I look nice. And I think, you know, that's probably the standard female experience. But yeah, it, with invisibility, you have to reassess who you are. And I mean, I, I do remember when I was in my early 20s, I had long blonde hair. I had a tiny flat in Hampstead that was my best friend's, and she let me live in it while she was working abroad. And I had a little red MG sports car. And I remember going on a date with a man who said, oh, you look like this kind of blonde, gorgeous thing. And you have this sports car and you have the little flat and you're a journalist. And it was like he was ticking things off a list. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I could be anybody. And I cut my hair off not long after. I cut it really short. And I remember really clearly noticing that the amount of attention I got was kind of halved immediately. But the attention I got was much more from the kind of men I wanted attention from, you know, Mm -hmm. men who were not going to be swayed by what they saw as sort of stereotypical, attractive attributes. And I think there's probably still a bit of that in me. Like, I kind of don't care what most people think of me. I don't find other people (laughs) attractive. <laughs> mm. you know, <laughs> was, exactly, yeah. you know the whole. Exactly, I was married for twenty-two years, and you know, completely faithful. I'm just not somebody who needs validation in in that way. But it, yeah, it's interesting. Especially when you get to this age, the kind of people who might reach out to you, whether they're male or female, who find you attractive in any way, whether it's your character or your appearance, tend to be much more the kind of people you might be interested in having some kind of relationship with.
1: You write in, well, in fact, in all your books with incredible honesty about the trajectory of long-term relationships Mm, mm. and it's it's so interesting because i remember when i was writing the shift and we've talked about this before the number of women who were just like oh my god if i have to watch him i don't know eat whatever with his fingers one more time i'm gonna like punch something and one woman said to me you know it's just that what we want is starting to go in in different directions and he is truly happy playing golf and picking up a kung pao chicken Mm. on the way home and Mm. i just can't bear it if there's not more to life than golf and kung pao chicken
2: so many women i hear it from so many women and it's interesting when you tell your friends that you know your marriage is ending especially in your late 40s well there's a number of responses there's a lot of people who said to me you know you're mad because security is everything and even a lawyer who i went to see said well, it's a good job you're this side of 50 because you still have time to maybe find somebody else. Like I had this shelf life and and it was kind of rapidly evaporating. And I just remember kind of being open-mouthed at the, the way he said it like, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's a nice thing to hear. But I can say the other response is from women who suddenly open up and reveal that, you know, maybe they haven't had sex for 10 years or they're so miserable, but they can't leave because of finance or they are just, yeah, exactly that. If they have to sit on their sofa beside their husband again, you know, they will literally go mad. And I think there is definitely a thing where men are happier with the status quo and women are free of their responsibilities suddenly having spent maybe 20 years looking after children or elderly parents or whatever, and suddenly going, well, hang on, I might have 20, 30 good years left. What am I going to do with him? And, you know, my ex-husband is a lovely man and we still speak mm. most days. Uh, we always have done. I'm very proud of the way we've managed to get through our divorce. And in fact, the lawyer who dealt with it sent me an email afterwards saying, I wish everybody treated each other with the kindness and dignity that you two have, yeah. um, because our priority was harmony as far as possible mm. and looking after our children and not presenting them with the kind set up that was going to scar them for life. You know, I'm sure we will have scarred them in some way, but hopefully, you know, we still spend every Christmas together. We always have done and and always will. But at the same time, we wanted different things. And I just, you know, the pandemic and my mother dying made me realise that you do only get one shot at this wild and crazy life. And to some extent, you know, maybe it's a selfish act, which is a hard thing to contemplate because we're always brought up as women to kind of put other Mm. people's needs first. But I feel like everybody in my family, because I still do consider my ex-husband family, we've all come through it in as good a way as possible. And we will always be a family. To some extent, people might not agree with that. But, you know, again, I don't care because no. I'm 53. <laughs> <laughs> and I know the truth of the situation. My kids and I have a very, very open relationship about feelings. That's one of the things that I've tried to give them that I probably didn't have growing up. Um, we talk about uncomfortable stuff and we talk about difficult stuff and, and we've all processed all the
1: things, basically. Do you think they find it easier to be open about stuff than you do?
2: Maybe not. One of the things I did, because I'm a massive believer in therapy, it has completely Mm. changed my life and I've been in and out of it for 20 years and it has given me so many tools for coping that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so one of the things I did say to them when uh, we told them what was happening was, if you want it, I think you should have some therapy because it's important for you to be able to have ugly feelings and yeah. discuss them with someone who is not your family so that you you have a safe space to, to process all that stuff. And two of them have done that. One of them is going to. Uh, and I think my generation, our parents... Shut everything down. I mean, unless you were very unusual, but our parents were not comfortable talking about feelings, not uncomfortable admitting to vulnerabilities or problems. That's a sweeping generalization, obviously. But with a lot of people that I speak to, it seems to hold. And, you know, maybe there are some advantages to the stiff upper lip, but. For me personally, I can't see many. So I was determined that my kids should be able to talk about things in an open way. And you know what? Sometimes it's really uncomfortable. It's not always easy to hear if someone thinks that you've been crap at something. Or But we're always respectful and we're always kind. And what I'm very proud of my kids for is that they can talk about what they need. And that was something I never, you know, it's taken me a lot of years of therapy to talk about what I need. And you know, I, It's interesting just listening to the whole fury about Harry um, and yeah. talking about therapy, because even as I'm speaking, I'm aware that there is a certain level of seeming indulgence to it. The response to Harry is very interesting because I, I, I think in families, there are often people who feel threatened if somebody announces they're in therapy. And with yeah. Harry, I believe that we see him as extended family because we see the royals as a kind of extended British family. Mm. And so there are a lot of people feeling threatened threatened by this apparent shift in his focus and behavior. And I just I'm a complete believer in in good therapy and using tools and I just don't think it's a, a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of strength and I just could not have got through a lot of the stuff that I've got through in the last few years without having a safe space to discuss and weep and get angry about stuff and and understand my own crappy patterns of behavior as well you know we we are really good at repeating things and not understanding why we're doing them and and sabotaging our own happiness and i just want to give me and my children the best chance of happiness that we can get in an extremely difficult world
0: Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
1: This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Sorry, that was a lot, wasn't
1: no, it? <laughs> no, it's, no, it's, it's really interesting, and I was just thinking that... It's so true because I was totally dismissive of therapy and was not the kind of person who would have therapy and was famously like, you know, the health editor on Reddit. And before, the health editor would come in and suggest an idea and I'd go, too woo woo-woo, next, you know. And it was only when I finally had my own therapy at the same time as I was perimenopausal and, you know, that kind of confluence of events that I realised the damage that I had Done to, Well, not I say done to myself, but that had been done by, you know, keeping the lid on the box of things mm-hmm. that happen when you're a bit younger and how that influences you. Like you talked about your workaholism when I was a massive workaholic. Yeah. And even yeah. now, when I can't work the way I used to because of long COVID, I still find myself trying to work 12 hours a day, you know, and then wondering why I've got a bloody awful headache and have to take a day on the sofa because I can't kick that. Although now I know that I'm doing it and I know why I did it. I was just constantly trying to not think, I suppose.
2: Yes. Yes. That's it. It's an avoidance strategy. I mean, there's that fantastic book titled The Body Keeps the Score.
1: It's a fantastic book.
2: And what I realise now is the title enough alone resonates with me because your body does keep the score and sometime around late 2019 I started having panic attacks which I'd never had in my life and I I'd always assumed that panic attacks were a thing where you just felt a bit kind of breathless and worried and Mm. what I didn't realize is it actually feels like someone is dragging you down to the bowels of hell and that you might be dying I mean it's it's an extraordinary feeling and the first time I I had one I thought am I dying I don't understand what's going on and I had a friend who had been through many of them himself and he talked me through it and how to come out the other side of it but they kept happening they happened on a book tour it was my body warning me long before I realized myself Mm. that I couldn't sustain what I was doing and because I loved my job, I really loved my job, I still do. I couldn't understand how that could be workaholism. Because if I loved it, then why would it be doing me damage? Sorry, this, is, this does feel quite self-indulgent, but I guess you want me to talk about myself. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> I also understand like a lot of writers, I am quite introverted. I'm so comfortable in my own company. And what I understand now is that if you are on 18 hours a day, mm. for example, on a book tour with no days off, except travel days, and even then you are on because is you have to talk to drivers and you know people who are accompanying you. because You have to make small talk or else you're going to look like a dick, right? You, you have to be polite and nice to everybody. But that comes with a cost too, because if you are not an extrovert who gets their energy from other people, if you feel drained by constant conversation or constantly being on, then at some point that's going to catch up with you. And I didn't understand that about myself because I do like parties and I do like meeting people. Yeah. But now when I look back, I can see, You know, I do love a party, but equally in the middle of it, you will find me hiding in the loo for half an hour while I just recharge. You know, I feel like Wally, you know, when he used to go outside and get the sun to kind of recharge, that's me in a dark corner. Yeah, (laughs) I just, I can't do on all the time. And I think that affected me in a visceral way that I didn't understand until actually quite recently.
1: Sure. I honestly think I've only worked that out in the last year. You know, Mm. that literally that is the difference between extroverts and introverts. That extroverts are filled up by people And introverts yep. are emptied by them And if you do yep. enough of that Like you were Because that was happening to you At the h- absolute height of me before you Wasn't it?
2: When I kind of fell apart Was was after Giver of Stars I did a three and a half week God, book really? tour Across several countries Including time changes I think I had one day off in the middle And that was just so that I could wash my clothes But at the end of it I'm, I'm just going to be really open about this um, I was in Frankfurt Having flown there from Denver uh, oh 24 God. hours previously, and I was at a lunch and I started to laugh at a joke and then I started to cry and then I couldn't stop crying. And I remember looking around at this table at all these lovely people, publishing people who were there to kind of celebrate me. And I couldn't stop. And it was mortifying. And yeah, I think that was the point at which I realized, okay, this, <laughs> this is no longer normal behavior and you need to fix this. And so my plan initially had been to take a year off work and just have a kind of gap year, if you like. And I was going to travel and hang out with my family more and just do things for pleasure. And then my mum started to die and the pandemic hit. So it was not the year of of rest that I'd planned. But in a lot of ways, with hindsight, it was, I don't want to say useful because that sounds wrong, given what I was dealing with. but Being forced to sit still and deal with my feelings and sit with my feelings and deal with what was going on was useful. Because I think if I hadn't been to where I'd been, I would have just tried to work my way through them. I would have written and I would have travelled and I wouldn't have faced any of it head on. And what the pandemic forced me to do was face all of it head on because it was just us in our tiny, you know, area of existence for a very long time.
1: And I think that when something like that happens... It happens because you won't listen to any of the other warning signs. Yeah. Cause you've yeah, been ignoring think, everything else
2: exactly and i think i grew up in you know there was no mental health issues in my family there were no mental health you know everyone in my mm. family is remarkably sturdy and that's lovely in a lot of ways but it meant that i didn't recognize what was going on when it happened to me and yeah i think also british people especially we're just very good i'm definitely a plow honor you know mm. i just yeah I just put my head down and get on with it get on with it and you know working in journalism as well newspaper journalism, you you have to deliver the story. That's it. You know, because if, if you don't, there's going to be a blank page in the paper. So I think working in that industry from quite an early age inculcated me with an idea that the work comes first, always. You know, you miss yeah. weddings, you miss funerals, you miss everything. You just do the work. And also, you know, my, my formative years in work were in the 80s when work yeah. was everything. I think this generation are much more attuned to how they feel about things and where whether it's good for them or not. So hopefully they won't make some of those mistakes. They'll make others.
1: So um, the other thing about Someone Else's Shoes is it's a total, I suppose, love letter to the solidarity of women. It really is. To female friendship. For me, yeah, I,
2: I couldn't have got through the last three and a half years without a very... Small group of girlfriends. I have the same best friend that I've had since I was 16. And even though we weren't in the same part of the country, we spoke pretty much every day. You know, there was a sort of running joke with us that we would speak and one of us would be weeping in a car in a (laughs) lay-by. Our children didn't see us cry. And unlikely people as well you know i 've got one girlfriend well actually i 'll tell you she she 's the director of me before you, and just every few weeks she'd just send me a text going you don 't need to respond i 'm just thinking of you hoping you 're okay and sending love and What I realized from that was just there is such a value in just checking in and sending someone a text and and also giving them the freedom not to respond because mm. the other thing I found during that period and and still do to some extent I have become almost incapable of responding to things quickly. I mm. used to be an immediate returner of email and text. I considered it almost a point of pride and I was almost offended when people didn't do the same to me. Yeah. Now it's not unusual for me to take a week to respond to something. My brain literally says, I can't, I can't do it. I just can't do it. My circle has shrunk like a lot of people and I just, I trust that the people I am close to know that it's not personal it's just that I respond to things on my own time now a friend once described me at the height of my success as looking like a rabbit in headlights yeah I used to flinch when I had a phone call because I always felt like I had to answer everybody immediately do the thing do the thing do the thing and now I just can't I just can't and I'm not willing to do it either and I have understood how fragile you can get from what you think is a position of strength and I'm not willing to sacrifice any of the stability that I've won back by being at other people's beck and call immediately. I, I don't know if that sounds sort of terribly hard or selfish, but
1: no, not uh, at all. I do
2: respond to everything. I just don't do it in the time frame that I used to do it. And I think that maybe our culture, my ex-husband describes email as somebody else's to-do list. And I yeah, think that's a really right. good way of looking right. at it. You know, so once you know that you're actually responding to somebody else's to-do list, it gives you the freedom to maybe not respond immediately.
1: I think there are two things, aren't there? One is that if basically an email or a phone call or a text make you tense up and your shoulders rise up to your ears and your kind of yeah. heart starts to race, there's something wrong with that in the first instance. That's not like great. You know, not so much now, but certainly I've had years and years where my entire days can be lost because of one email that I couldn't yeah. let lie. I couldn't just Yeah, and that's not Leave good. there. It's I mean not also I,
2: I didn't have the downtime like I didn't used to do lunch. Mm. Uh, somebody very wise once said to me if you have children you can only do one other thing well. And I really took that to heart. So I did work and I did kids. And that meant that I slightly, I didn't lose touch with my friends, but my my friends were pretty much tied up with my work life. Everybody was involved in the media or writing or whatever. I didn't take lunch breaks. I didn't go out very much because I didn't have time. And also I lived in a very isolated place, which meant that to go to a, a thing meant at least two hours travel each way. And it had some advantages. I loved being in the countryside. I loved all that. But now, I don't start work at five or seven anymore. I did that. That for years, and now I get up probably seven thirty. I get up when my dogs wake me up. I take them <laughs> for a long walk on Hampstead Heath, at least three or four times a week. Usually, meet my best friend and her dog on the heath, and we'll walk for an hour and a half, and we'll chat. And I'll stop for a coffee on the way back, and then I'll start work. And the luxury the absolute pleasure and luxury of being able to see my friend and talk to her and live in the same postcode as her is something that I don't think is ever going to get old because I think one of the things the pandemic has taught us is there is such value in connection and those small Mm. moments every day that ground you and make you realize you're not on your own and your life does not necessarily revolve around somebody else's to-do list and it just makes me happy Um, I've moved back to London after 23 years. And I was very nervous about it because it's a huge shift from the kind of life that I had been living. But so far, it feels wonderful. I mean, my God, I have cooked from scratch for 22 years. Now, Deliveroo is my best friend, and I, yeah. I'm probably completely overdoing it, but it's it feels like such a luxury to be able to order food in. I can't tell you if you've yeah. lived in the country for years and never been able to do that. All those things just feel revelatory to me. I live near a Jewish bakery, and just to be able to walk down and get a ba- bagel in the morning is extraordinary. It's such a pleasure. And and I've really learned to enjoy those small things in a way that I just didn't even register them before. I didn't Mm. register their absence and I didn't appreciate them. And now I really appreciate them.
1: Do you think that there's something about this time of life you know and i can't speak for men because i'm not one but Mm. amongst women of our sort of age that in a way i don't know whether it's menopause plays a part or whether it's just that everybody's been through something that's kind of an equalizer and that yes you can meet someone and you can decide almost instantly whether or not you recognize them whether or not they're going to be someone in your life.
2: In your 20s and 30s, there is an element of competitiveness. And I don't mean that in a kind of negative, you know, women fighting each other for a pole position. It's like you're looking at all these so-called markers of your success, whether it's career, whether it's getting married, whether it's having a child, getting a flat, all those things that you're told that you should want. Mm, The list, yeah. And the slight panic that you might be being left behind this kind of mythical so-called race you know but by the time you get to your 40s and 50s everybody is a survivor of something everybody is a survivor of something and what i love about this age is you meet another woman and within minutes you are onto the meat and bone and sinew of life you are you know i i went to a launch party a a couple of months back and ended up discussing children's mental health with someone i would never met before and and then i went to a a women's sort of dinner last Friday—the kind of thing I would never have allowed myself to go to before. I didn't know most of these women. I had the best time. It was just, yeah, it—it it was just all real stuff, and everybody had been through something, and—and and it means that there is a compassion and an instant empathy between women that I wouldn't have recognized in my thirties. But I find it incredibly consoling and incredibly comforting, and it feels like the connections you make. Are Quite real because they're not based on anything. You're not trying to present anything. You're just going, Oh my God, here I still am. How about you? How are you? You know, it's just, I, I love it. I really love it. And I feel like it makes every event that I go to an absolute pleasure because you're having real conversations. You're not presenting anything. You're just going, Oh my God, yeah, what have we just been
1: through? Maybe female friendships, the importance of them becomes renewed at this time of life, almost a return to a kind of a teenage I don't know
2: yeah well we definitely I think we understand the value. I mean, for those of us who've had children, we've had our heads down for 20 years. When you have children, you have to make them your priority or else you're not doing it right. You know, you have to give up other things in order to help raise them. And the weird thing is, once they hit their teenage years, their needs become so much more complex and, and involved. It's not like you can leave them. You have to be present, even if you're just on the end of a phone constantly. And then when they suddenly spread their wings and start, you know, checking up with people or going to university or whatever other people are taking on a little bit of that and it frees your energy and your emotional ability to involve yourself with other people's lives again in a way that it probably doesn't since you were a teenager or in your early 20s when you had those peculiar intense friendships where you literally knew everything about each other I'm not sure if you return to that but I think after a long absence for me personally I really recognized the value and the mood boosting and the energy-giving properties of female friendship in a way that i probably hadn't understood for a long time i mean i get teary about how grateful i am for my friendships i get actually teary when i come away i'm so so grateful to those various women you know and you've been one of them in the past it's it's like we've all just stood up for each other at, mm. at times when we've had our individual crises and and if you're lucky enough to have long-term friendships and i i think because i was an only child for 20 years I always understood how to be a good friend because I had to you have to cultivate yeah. friendships if you don't have siblings um so most of my friendships span decades um and different stages of life and I think the one thing I wanted for my own kids was to have those sorts of friendships because I don't honestly know how people get through life without them I don't understand how women get through life when they say oh I'm not really a woman's woman I'm just like what mm, <laughs> how yeah. how can you not be because yeah. we we do have different frames of reference and we do, I mean, I love my male friends too. Don't get me wrong. I just, you know, but it's a completely different energy and it's, by the time you get to this edge, it's a completely different bunch of stuff that you're generally dealing with. So I like my male friends for different reasons.
1: Right, before I ask you the questions I always ask at the end, which I know you've okay. answered before, but I bet there'll be different answers. Um, they probably will. Did you see the stuff about Madonna in the mail? No oh my god so you know just basically the usual thing you know why can't she behave in an appropriate way for her age you know so she's launching a greatest hits tour and the kind of coverage that they run about her basically not behaving appropriately you could just not ever imagine them running about mick jagger do you think that those double standards are ever going to change Yes, I do.
2: Because I think women are not putting up with them in the same way. I mean, whenever I read a newspaper article that says things not to wear over 40, I immediately (laughs) want to get you know get online and buy a load of those things yeah. because
1: I'm silver menisker here I'm I come have
2: yeah. some judgmental kind of you know middle aged guy with his belly busting over his trousers in some newspaper office somewhere dictating what I should or shouldn't do and actually I shouldn't say just men because some of the women who write those things are the yeah. worst offenders who was that great American politician who said you know there's a special place in hell reserved for women who do not support other women Yeah, I just don't understand it also like just get on with your own stuff don't worry about what everybody else is doing you know i, I look at iris apple she's kind of followed oh God, her she's a hundred thing. isn't she no. and i'm sure she was mocked mercilessly at various points for how she decided to dress but it made her happy and now it makes loads of us happy as well because I look at you know old broads like that and I use broads in the fondest sense Mm. I, I very much hope to be an old broad and I just think how fantastic that you have the strength and confidence to do what makes you happy without fear of how anybody else thinks you know you should look so I do think women are I think we notice it more than we used to I think we we just went along with it before. And over the last 20 years, I think things have started to gradually change. Equally, I think there has never been a kind of more misogynistic pushback. You know, you look at the rise mm. of people like Andrew Tate and you think we have to be hyper vigilant. We have to always be guarding our space because there are going to be people, you know, dictating what young girls should be doing and how they should be behaving so I just think, yeah, again, the joy of becoming middle-aged is that you're just genuinely careless and, you know, I have sort of mixed feelings about Madonna in a lot of ways. Sometimes I wish she would read a room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but equally, I absolutely adored her. You know, for years, uh, I looked up to her massively when I was a young a young woman because she was the first woman I ever saw who was sexual for her own pleasure. Oh, so it seemed to me that she mm. did what made her happy and she presented herself in a way that made her feel good. And if everybody else got titillated, well good for them. But it was actually about her own feelings about herself and her body. And I remember kind of going to see her in concert and there was this her body was a, a work of art. You know, she'd put the hours mm. in. And I, I look at people like her and J Lo, you know, still busting moves and looking absolutely astonishing. And I think, Good luck to you. It makes you happy and good luck to you. That's all that counts.
1: And like you say, they put the hours in. It's- Their job. Yeah,
2: yeah, it is their job. Yeah. Would I like to look like J Lo?
1: (laughs) I would give one of my arms to look like J Lo. Yeah. Would you like to spend the hours in the gym that she does? Probably not. No, I'm too
2: lazy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you know, if they're prepared to do it, good. Good for them. I'm, I'm full of admiration.
1: Right. What is your emotional age? Interesting.
2: In my head, I think I'm 31, and it's always. A shock when i see this slightly crepey person looking back at me um but i would say like i said earlier i think it took me till my late 40s to feel properly comfortable in my own skin i think i actually looked better at 49 than i did at 29
1: yeah yeah interesting uh give us a book recommendation so it can be something it's been super important to your whole life or it can just be something good you read last week I'm nearly
2: finished a book called Conversations in Love by Natasha Lunn. Mm. which is a nonfiction book about our relationship to the idea of love, whether it is sibling love, parental love, or romantic love. And it is absolutely fascinating. It speaks to lots of people from you know psychotherapists such as Philippa Perry to Candice Carty-Williams to, I mean, just loads of women with very varied experiences. But I have found it incredibly thought-provoking and useful. I've bookmarked loads of things. Um, Yeah, I love books that sort of teach you something about yourself.
1: What advice would you give younger women? Look outwards. Just look outwards.
2: Don't think about what the world thinks of you. Ask what you want from it. What do you like? What do you desire? What do you want? You know, just be interested because it's a lot more comfortable than feeling the eyes of the world on you all the time. And interesting.
1: (laughs) So who is your old I'm going to change it for you. Who's your old broad role mm. model? Oh, gosh. I'd
2: love to have the kind of sass of Lauren Bacall. Like, mm. there's a woman who looked amazing, incredibly talented, but absolutely knew her own mind and didn't suffer fools gladly. But equally, I was watching uh, Audrey Hepburn last night and just thinking, what an example of grace. You know the epitome of of grace and and just feeling like it came from a genuine place of gratitude and humility within her, rather than some kind of actressy thing. But I mean, I I feel like I'm always picking little bits from people and trying to utilize them for myself, from Bridget Riley to Vivian Westwood to I mean Chrissy Hines. Just there's a mm. so many fantastic women. But I guess the communal factor, if you like, would be women who've stopped caring what other people think about them and just got on with their stuff. That would be the thing that I would like to take away. What's your superpower? Parallel parking. (laughs) That's worth having. I really love driving. I've been a kind of shameful petrol head since I was 17. For me, cars were freedom. Like Growing up in Hackney, where it wasn't very safe in the 80s, a car for me meant that I could get around without being hassled and without being afraid. And it set up a long, unjustifiable love affair with cars. And I'm afraid when I got divorced, I went out and I bought myself a Porsche. Oh, my God, the dream. It is embarrassing how much I love my car. What's the Porsche? It's a Carrera 911 GTS and it's black and it's like the car equivalent of Emma Peel and it's convertible and I love it an indecent amount.
1: Good for you. And lastly, how many fucks do you give?
2: There's probably only about two left on the shelf. One of them would be my kids and the other would be changing depending on any given day. But no, very few fucks left on the shelf.
1: That's brilliant. And that is different than what you said last time. I'm so fascinated when people come back, how different their answers are. Things change, you know.
2: Things change. And I was a very private person before. And I I felt acutely when I realised that my marriage was going to end, that I didn't want my kids to be visible in that. And I didn't want to be visible. And I had a horror of people knowing what was going on in my life internally But again, what I found coming through the other side is that there is a a value in honesty. And so this year when I've started talking, I've been really honest about my mental health struggles. I've been really honest about what's gone on in my life, because if everybody is struggling, and I think there is a huge proportion of people who are right now, then what is useful sometimes is for someone to say, I've been there. I've come out the other side mostly, I feel what you're feeling and it would be wrong to portray something else.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming back to The Shift, Jojo. Thank
2: you for having me.
1: A nice headboard.
2: Oh, <laughs> thank you very much. It, it, this bed is actually ridiculously high, and I'm quite short. And I got one of those super deep mattresses to go on it, and a mattress topper. So I clamber into my bed like a kind of three year old. It's ridiculous, but um, it's very comfy.
1: <laughs> thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of the Shift each Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear. Please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support the shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at study.media/theshift.